Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast that delves into the fascinating world of innovative in-house legal teams and pioneers in the field of legal leadership. I'm Cynthia Loren, your host, and today we're excited to have a very distinguished guest, Sue Manick, joining us. Sue is a seasoned business professional with over 20 years of experience in the financial services sector. Her unique perspective is shaped by her extensive work both in-house and in private practice. Currently, Sue holds a very important role at Standard Chartered Bank as the head of supply performance, uh, where she's been instrumental in all that's happening there since September 2016. Sue, it's a huge pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome to our podcast. You've had a really impressive legal career, led to the current role that you do now at Standard Chartered. Can you give us a high-level overview of the Sue Manic story and how you got to, to this point? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thank you, Cynthia. Thanks for having me um, on your podcast today. My career actually started off um, at uh, Nationwide Building Society, um, where I actually worked um, as a sort of a compliance auditor um, to start off my career. Slightly strange, but actually it was a really interesting insight into working um, in a regulated bank um, and building society. Um, I was fortunate enough to um, have had an opportunity to work with um, our general counsel at the time, a lady called Liz Kelly, um, who was a great influence on my career in terms of, you know, where I wanted to take it. And I was really interested in the operations side and strategy side of running a legal function. Mm-hmm. So um, I basically stuck my head above the parapet and said, I really want to do this. And she gave me the opportunity to do that, which is great. Um, I worked with um, the Nationwide Building Society for a number of years in an operations um, role. Um, And that sort of gave me the footing, really, to really think about what it is to run an in-house function. Mm -hmm. Uh, From there, I was then lucky enough to go and work for Adelshaw Gullard and actually as part of that, my role there was head of clients. And that role was really insightful because what I soon quickly realized that actually doing that role, that many of the in-house functions face similar challenges. So for me, that was a great opportunity to really build upon some of the skills I'd learned nationwide um, and to apply that to other organizations, not just banking, but um, oil and gas and, you know, Royal Mail, various other industries. Um, and actually, what that then sort of made me realise very quickly that I really missed working in-house. So I then went back in-house and now I ended up with Standard Chartered, which I absolutely love the job I do now. Fantastic. So your role um, is head of supplier relationships. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that entails, what you actually do? Yeah, so my role primarily is to help set the strategy when it comes to external suppliers. So we do that across the function um, to ensure that the the lawyers basically have the right type of vendors in place. 
uh, both from a global perspective, but also from a domestic and country perspective as well. So it's really to try and help the lawyers, making sure that we've got the right people that can help them. That's what I'm um, sort of working towards um, in the role there at Standard Chartered. And what would you say is your favourite part of doing that role? Because it's not something that you would, would you describe, I guess there's two questions. First of all, would you describe that as a typical legal ops role? Um, And then is there a favourite part of what you do? I mean, it's not a typical sort of uh, legal ops role, but I think it's becoming more important. And what I found in the role that I do is that it opens up opportunities to work on other projects. And that's, that's a big part of what I actually like working at Standard Chartered. We have lots of varied projects that we deliver um, across the function, and that's part of it. And I suppose what makes the organisation a great place to work is just the sheer diversity of people that you work with. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that to me is really important um, to actually get different sort of diversity of thought coming in, which I think is really important, you know, and having that on a global perspective is, is just fabulous. So that's what makes it really uh, enjoyable for me there, working there. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit more about um, diversity a little later in the interview. But legal operations has evolved significantly in the last couple of decades. You know, I think the US are probably slightly ahead of us, but we're certainly catching up here in the UK. How have you, how do you view kind of the evolution and how that's impacted the legal field, you know, for you, what's, what are the big strides? You know, why is it significant? Why is it so important that we're looking at legal ops right now? I think it's important to acknowledge that um, there is a real, uh, I think now, a real understanding of the different type of skill set that an operations individual can bring to a function. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really important is recognising that there are these different skill sets out there that can actually really help to push the um, the legal function forward. Um, it always felt like a secondary role. And when I first started off many years ago, I was probably one of the first operation managers um, that was put in place. Mm. And over the years now, you can see how as an industry that's grown. But I think that's part recognition of the fact that a lot of GCs value the input that operations advisors can provide. Yeah, um, And whether that be through sort of project management skills or um, sort of business development um, or actually just working on projects where it's tech implementation, yeah. they recognise that actually that skill set is slightly different to what our traditional lawyers will have. And a lot of lawyers, I would suspect, that did this role on the side of their desks even before we arrived mm. um, and were probably quite glad to hand it over. Um <laughs> But actually, you know, I, I think it just shows how, you know, the industry has changed and it, it's still changing. And I think that what we will see in the future will be even different. Interesting. OK, so my my next question then is, what do you <laughs> anticipate as being the future of legal law? And I guess it's, you know, everyone has a slightly different take on this, but I'm fascinated yeah. to what you you think is it will be the kind of the, the focus. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think again, I think it's about adapting to what the future holds for us. With any industry, you know, technology and data is going to be quite big. Mm. And actually, those types of roles, really understanding how legal tech works within an organisation is really important. 
um, understanding what's new, understanding what can change, understanding the fact that we've now got sort of AI, which is now hitting, yeah. and actually the impact of what that could be um, on the way we look at sort of future legal work. So I suspect that the type of roles that we'll see in the future, um, I would hope that it will bring up some new opportunities for either lawyers, ex-lawyers, um, to actually come in and really work with us as operations individuals to really try and develop some of these areas. Mm. So I suspect a lot of legal scientists, data analysis, um, data analytics, mm -hmm. um, I think they're probably some of the new up-and-coming up roles that we're, we're likely to see. Interesting, interesting. How do you how do you keep on top of what's going on? Because my view is, so I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, you know, yeah. looking at what people are up to, particularly in the legal ops space, and it, it's ever-changing. You know, people post things and you read different articles. How do you keep on top of the change? Like, are there yeah. tools, are there initiatives, are there programs that you're kind of plugged into? How do you do that? I suppose that the, the there's nothing better than the power of a network. And mm -hmm. actually, I think that that's one thing that Cynthia and I, you, we've known each other for years, and mm -hmm. actually that's part of it, is that you bounce off other individuals that yeah. are going through similar processes. Yeah. But also you're right. I think there are lots of forums out there whereby you can go along, you can see and understand what new legal technology is coming in, you can understand what sort of key challenges are that people are facing at the moment. Um, and actually just that power of the network, I think, is really yeah. important. And that's what I value, I yeah. think, most of all. And I think most of us in operations are quite happy to share approaches because they're not necessarily unique to an organisation. What we do, what we've developed over the last few years is approaches in terms of how we would look at a particular problems. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where I find now is that, you know, I'm more than happy to try and share or at least speak to people around my experiences of how I've approached a particular project, um, you know, and actually just talk them through it. And I think that that, that to me is, is a real, um, it's a real movement, I think, in terms of where we're trying to get to with this. You know, this isn't, you know, we're, we're, all, we're all trying to help each other, which I think is great. And as I say, aside from the actual forums that are set up or the conferences, just that power of the network really does does help. Yeah. And I, I think with the obviously with the evolution of legal ops as being a space in its own right, there is now so much interest, particularly from the younger generation. I mean, on the one hand, you've got those who are already doing a role and want to go into legal ops, yes. but you know, that you've got people like my son, for example, his friends, thinking about legal operations as an actual profession yeah. so what yeah. kind of advice would you give someone who's looking at this as a career you know they're considering it as a future um career step what would you kind of advise them to to be thinking about or to be doing it's interesting actually because um we've been doing some work more recently with an organization that looks at non-muscle group um, students mm -hmm. and we've been talking to them about actually some of the opportunities that we have in the operations space I think it's largely an area where um, individuals don't know much about, actually. So despite it being around for a while, we're not very good at communicating about what those roles could be in the future. Yeah, um, I'm starting to see things come through on LinkedIn, which is really good. And we look at legal project managers and so forth that can be in and being advertised as roles, which I sort of see a bit of a seed turn in relation to that, because you can see that 
these roles are now coming up. Yeah. So what I would say to a lot of younger individuals that are perhaps studying law that may have struggled to get a training contract or, you know, didn't actually think that this was a career yeah. um, is to have a conversation, have a conversation, do your research, yeah. um, you know, and actually really think about what else does a, as a big multi-organization like that we are, you yeah. know, what type of roles are available um, and start to explore them. Yeah. Um, yeah, and actually really think about what what is the unique skill set that you can bring. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's important to really sort of try and figure out. Um, but those opportunities are there and they're coming up. And I've seen some great programs um, and recruitment going on within the legal firms, which shows that actually they're not just recruiting lawyers now, they're actually recruiting people from a legal tech background or a data background. You can see it's already coming through, which is yeah. great. Yeah, no, great advice. That's um, really good advice. Now, I know you've mentioned data already and just, you know, the importance of data, the focus on data. I know you love data, good data. Talk to me a little bit about um, how the legal team um, that you work with and, and support, um, how, did, how do you ensure that you're harnessing data to make informed decisions? Because it's all well and good having the data, but yeah. how are you using it and how are you leveraging it? I mean, we look at data in various different ways, whether that be to manage um, our global panel firms, whether we might use that to manage our country firms and so forth. But um, I think what's becoming more important is that in order for us to really think about how do we make decisions going forward, whether they were buying decisions or whether um, it's based on, you know, looking at productivity, for example, that actually it's the data that helps drive some of these decisions. And that is important. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would very rarely come across somebody that would take any decision at face value without really understanding the power of the data that sits behind it. Yeah. And I think that that's the key, is to really understand that whatever your data you're trying to collate, it will drive a certain outcome. And I think that that's what we need to try and think about is, how does your data drive an outcome in terms mm -hmm. of where you want to be? And I think it's getting better. It's definitely getting better in terms of how we approach that. Um, and actually, you know, the law firms are really great at sharing this stuff as well. So, you know, as much as, you know, you would want to try and delve into an area much deeper, what we found is working collaboration with our law firms is they're really willing to share data. And that really is quite helpful in a way that actually helps us to make some meaningful decisions yeah. um, going forward. Yeah, no, that, and that's fantastic to hear that that's an area of collaboration, you know, with your um, relationship firms. I'm curious to know, do you, can you think of an example, um, without saying who the firm is, but an example of a law firm um, that has really supported you in that sense, um, sort of leaning in on, on the data front? It's hard to sort of pinpoint one firm because what we tend to do is when we go out for data, we tend to ask all our firms for the same sort of information. Yeah. And actually, you know, one of the things that we did during our panel reviews is actually ask for a lot of data around their billings and so right. forth. And actually they were very forthcoming in relation to providing information in regards to that. Right. Um, and I think that that's important. If you're going to have a two-way relationship, yeah, you you have to be able to share, and I think that that's where we try and get to. Yeah, um, and I think that it also helps us to track progress. Mm -hmm. So, 
a good example of that might be around, say, for example, DNI. You know, how is DNI being looked at in an organization? And I think that's really important because, you know, as a bank, we have our specific targets that we need to achieve. So actually, what we want to try and do is encourage our suppliers to get to that same space. Yeah. So actually, it's really good to understand the level of detail that they can provide that helps you to make those decisions and making sure that they're going in the right direction. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's a great way of sort of demonstrating sort of collaboration yeah. um, piece. Yeah. And conversely, I'm curious, especially given that I came from the law firm world, um, are there areas that you currently feel that, you know, there are sometimes challenges or gaps from the law firms in delivering data? So are there any areas where you think actually this could be better, that there's more that needs to be done? I think often, um, I wouldn't say necessarily the the type of data. I think the bit that we sometimes struggle with in-house and, you know, probably have struggled for a while with most organisations, that this is not unique to to where I am at the moment, Mm -hmm. but actually how that information is received. There is a perception that, you know, in-house legal teams have lots of whizzy systems and are able to interpret that data using Mm -hmm. the latest technology and will get the answer in seconds. Yeah, that's not the reality. And most in-house functions won't have a data team that will help them analyze the data in a certain way. And so I think it's just being mindful of that and understanding, okay, if the client is asking for a piece of information, ask the question in terms of how do you want that delivered? Mm -hmm. You know, what are the specific things that you're looking for? What can we do to help you get to that point? Yeah. Because actually, that's really important to understand from a client's perspective. You know, what can I do to make your life easier? Yeah. And you very rarely get asked that question. And I don't know why, but actually, <laughs> that's to my mind. There are very few that will ask you that. But actually, yeah. that would help enormously Yeah, um, is to actually ask the method by which they want the data, how they can slice and dice that data for you. Mm. And actually, you know, present it back in a way that actually is easily digestible. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important, you know, for, for firms to think about. Yeah, that's a really great, really great tip. It's funny that you sort of referred to the whizzy systems that, you know, people imagine exist within within the in-house team. I guess one whizzy system that now exists for all of us is AI. And I know you talked about, uh, you, you sort of referenced AI earlier. So again, I'd love to lean in and understand a bit more about what Standard Chartered is doing on the AI front. You know, how do you guys feel about it as a legal team? Is there, you know, are you playing with the chat GPTs and their equivalents, that kind of thing? What's the view at the moment of the bank? I mean, it's it's a really exciting time for AI across the bank. And it's certainly uh, something that the bank are looking into, into how it's going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously that's part of a, a wider program across the bank. I think from a legal perspective, I think what it brings is um, it brings some interesting uh, debate around how it will be used in the future. Yeah. Actually, what does it actually mean in practice? Um, And I think that one of the things that we have to really think about is how do you get ready for something like this? I mean, this is like, you know, are we even ready to take on the AI? Because actually, AI is based upon a block of data and actually that's really important how do you analyze the data to enable ai to work in the future 
So actually how you think about data has to change um, in order for us to think about how we're going to use AI in the future. So it's a journey. Actually, what I would say, it's a big education program to work with our lawyers, but also, you know, trying to understand what could it mean in terms of the way that we work, Mm -hmm. making this more efficient and actually delivering more for the business and the firm. That's what we want to try and do. Um, So I think it's it's raised some really interesting debates, actually, in terms of what we do and how we do it. Um, So I think we're really excited about it. Yeah. And it it would be good to understand more because I think the banks particularly, um, particularly the regulator, you know, anyone in a regulated industry, there's so much more to have to consider. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely watching with great fascination as to how your teams within the banks are are, are leveraging AI. Um, One of the things, obviously, you know, I work for a legal tech company. And one of the things that we're very keen to understand is the true value um, of legal operations initiatives and how you measure them. Um, So I'd love you to share with me and with the audience, just how do you measure the return on investment for the various initiatives that you're investing in on it, on, especially on the tech front, you know, what, what methods, what metrics are you using to work out whether you're really deriving value? Cause it isn't just about, you know, paying for a, a, a platform or paying for, you know, a service, the tech. So what is it that really goes to the heart of you thinking, yes, this is an absolutely worthwhile investment for us? Yeah. So I think with any uh, with any sort of tech implementation, for us, there, there are a key number of things that we would always look out for. Mm-hmm. So one of them is around, you know, does it fit within our own bank's architecture, which I think is really important, actually. You know, we don't we don't normally go out to procure legal tech unless we know what the bank is also doing. So I think just be mindful of that. Um, once we know that, then we can then make a decision around what do we need to procure in order to help the function progress. So often it's often thinking about, OK, what what is the actual need? What's the problem we're trying to solve here? Because that's the key thing. What problem are you trying to solve here? And what would be the benefit of bringing the technology in? Mm-hmm. And that benefit can be in a number of forms. It doesn't necessarily have to be around cost, but it could also be around productivity, efficiency. Um, you know, those are the sort of key triggers that we would look at to say, are they actually influencing the way we do the work that we do today? Mm-hmm. And, you know, those, I would say, are some of the sort of real KPI metrics that we would consider to say, what is this going to be a success? So it's trying to understand, you know, is it going to actually result in a cost saving? Is it actually going to result in an efficiency time perspective? Or actually, is it just going to make us work a lot smarter? Mm. And you can measure that. So, you know, you would start off at the beginning of a project identifying what those KPIs might be, and then actually then tracking that as you're going through your project to actually then measure it at um, at the end. And a good example of that might be, and I have done this at, at sort of um, other organisations, um, is to perhaps look at, for example, how would you look at sort of managing your caseload? Yeah. So what, how do you do it? I remember doing this many years ago to try and think about, well, actually, uh, where do I find the information? How can I put the matter on a particular case, a matter system? Mm-hmm. And then actually, how can I then start to track what each individual is working on? And the time spent doing that. 
Yeah, I'm not saying that we do time recording at the moment, but actually, you know, there are other ways of measuring individual sort of productivity. um, And that's a really good way of doing it within a case management system or a matter management system to do that. Um, It also helps you with your long-term view. What type of work are you doing? What type of work are you doing in-house? How complex is it? And so forth. So, I think that the power of data and how you measure that up front, I think you have to establish at the start, try and think yeah. about what are, the, what are the key things you're trying to get in terms of your benefits and then understanding, okay, then how do I measure that benefit? And that's that's the key for us. Is that, and we would do that with most, most things we look at. You know, I imagine that you're approached by, you know, various tech vendors platforms, tools, etc. Are there things that you find you're almost being sold on that are actually really not relevant? You know, articulated all the things that are value for you with my tech vendor hat on. I'd love to understand, are there things that you're sort of being sold and you think actually it's not hugely important for us in, in the consideration? I think what tends to happen is, is, is tech vendors, I honestly, will do their homework before they come and talk to us, which is great, because actually what you don't want to do is waste anybody's time yeah. uh, when it comes to uh, implementing technology, because it's quite a big investment. And I think that you know both sides need to do their homework before they come and speak to you. Yeah, I think that, that, that actually one of the things that I'm sort of trying to uh, grapple with, actually, how do we look at areas that aren't being developed as quickly so it was interesting having gone to a conference more lately and the number of clm systems that were on the market which was just huge it just shows that there is a real bundle of loads of clm providers yeah they're all at it and they're all trying to get to the best platform (laughs) and so forth and i mean it's great to see but actually one of the things that you know, that we would sort of grapple with is actually, okay, we've got, we know what we're doing in terms of CLM, that's great. Mm-hmm. But one of the biggest things that we're sort of now trying to think about is knowledge. How do you manage knowledge in an organisation like ours that, you know, is a global, you know, we're effectively a global law firm within a bank. Yeah. And we have so much knowledge that we now just try and think about how do you start to make sure that you're sharing your knowledge in the best possible way. Yeah. Um, and actually, I've seen very little in relation to that. And I won't be the first to say that. I suspect that there'll be a lot of in-house functions thinking about how do you share knowledge more broadly. Mm. And that's really important for several reasons. One of them is around making sure that you keep the DNA of your knowledge within your firm, which I think is really important. But also then you're not duplicating effort because actually what you might find is that you know, you'll have one lawyer that went out to get some advice, but there's another lawyer that went out last week who also got the same advice but didn't know it. Yeah. So actually, how do you make sure that you're not making those mistakes and that you're actually not duplicating efforts? Um, and, you know, you're, you're mindful of that. I suppose the other point is around just making sure that you're upskilling your colleagues. How do you make sure you upskill others? Because actually... You know, there are always people that are coming up through the ranks that actually may not know as much as the, the, you know, the person at the top, but actually yeah. how do you share that? So I would love to see or hear, I'll probably get inundated after this, but <laughs> of, of individuals that are really thinking about this problem. You know, how yeah. do we share it? And I'll be really interested to, to hear from people. 
I'm glad I asked the question because I think it's important for us to understand where you, you know, what the interest is and where you see the, the, the gaps existing. So, Sue, you and I have known each other for, for quite a while. I know, you know, we crossed paths initially at Nationwide. Yeah. I was the first uh, client relationship manager at Oldswang yeah. and Nationwide was a very important um, account for me at the time. A lot has changed since we've known each other. Um, yeah. I would love to know if you, Sue Manic, today yeah. could wave a magic wand across the whole legal industry, being that you've been both in-house and on the law firm side, um, what would you change? What do you think needs to change so that the legal industry broadly can be better? I think in order for it to get better, it has to be one thing I learned both working at Alan Shaw's and um, working here now is just the power of relationships and actually listening to a client. Um, I think that there often can be um, a real difference around what people think we need versus actually listening to what we actually need. And I think that that is key for me is that I've always proud my you know I once been very proud of the fact that one of the things that I really advocate is um relationships and the power of relationships and actually it's one of the things that we you and I did when we were working together at Nationwide and being very open and honest about either feedback or things yeah. that aren't working well and so forth and just being really open about it I mean these are these are really good business relationships which you pride ourselves on and I think that I would really like to see more of that and people take that approach you know and just be mindful of the fact that sometimes you know understanding what people's problems are mm. I think is really important yeah. taking that time out to listen to individuals around what the problems can be how you can help them I think is really important I think also, I mean, one of the biggest things that I think will help this industry is just understanding that there is a common purpose around what we are trying to do as operational um, professionals. Mm -hmm. So actually, whether that is sharing in terms of what people do on sort of panel reviews, approaches that people take, approaches that people perhaps may want to take on DNI, mm -hmm. um, or you know, looking at what can we do better as an industry. I think is really important. You know, those things we should really think about collaborating together on um, and not work against each other because I think that's, you know, these are areas that we just, I think we really need to put some focus on. Yeah, yeah, love that. You're someone that I consider to be incredibly courageous and I know you did something very courageous at the end of last year, I think it was, when you shared your story online about overcoming challenges with um, anxiety and finding a path to your authentic self. Um, and that's something that really resonates with me. How do you think your personal journey has has changed your approach or influenced your approach um, to leadership and, and yeah. just being resilient? You know, how, how has that had an impact? I think what's, what's quite interesting is that you, when you're faced with difficult scenarios, that one of the things that you do learn is the, the power of, of a friendship, the power of support, um and the power of of having a family there which i think is really important so for me i think what's what's really helped me is actually taking on board some of that advice and actually mm -hmm. thinking about then how that helps me in the world of work actually mm -hmm. because one of the things that um i would definitely say is that 
throughout my journey, I, you know, as you know, I had breast cancer. One of the things that I learned as part of that is that I came out of the journey of breast cancer and all of a sudden I became less tolerant of people. I thought, why is that? Mm. And actually, when you start to unpick it, you're, the reason why you become less tolerant of people is because you start to think, well, actually, there's not much time left on earth. So actually, yeah. I just want to get to the point. Yeah. Um, but actually, you have to learn to do that and navigate that in a way that doesn't make people feel uncomfortable and you've got to help people try and get to that place. Mm. So I'm very much, a, you know, I'm, I'm very much an open type of leader. I'm, you know, I like new ideas. Um, you know, I like the, you know, the fact that people can talk to you about uh, a potential idea that they want to get off the ground. How do they do that? And for me, it's about making sure that I can help people get there and be their best. So, yeah, I, I consider myself to be a, a sort of an enabler to try and get people to where they need to be. And that's hopefully that'll be my legacy. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I do want to just, you know, say thank you for sharing your story and thank you for just being so open because I think it's empowered others to have yeah. conversations. So, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Oh, you're um, welcome. Yeah. Oh, let's talk a bit about diversity because I know you've you've touched yeah. on it a bit and it's something that you're very passionate about. It's something that's, you know, a big agenda topic at the bank. Um, you, you've talked about sort of diversity, particularly in the context of skill sets and, you know, just bringing different people together. So talk to me about what the bank is doing um, in terms of leveraging diversity to contribute to the effectiveness and the innovation within the legal team. I know you've got, you know, new GC, um, there's lots of change. Um, diversity is a big, big topic for you. So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things that that um, Sandy, Dr. Sandy Okoro is our general counsel, is really keen on doing, um, is actually really promoting the equity around DNI for the legal profession, which I think is amazing. And, you know, she'll talk about the fact more recently we've just set up our task force um, and the task force is made up of four firms which we're working with to really start to tackle some of those issues around some of the barriers around um, allowing individuals from those from black or ethnic minority groups um, getting into the profession. And actually what we're trying to do is work with our law firms to really start to unpick that. Um, so it's a really exciting piece of work, actually. And I, I, you know, we're sort of getting stuck into it now. Um, and it's really about how do we change that, you know, the profession as a whole going forward. Yeah. Um, and as I say, we're really passionate about that. We worked more recently also with Bucac. Um, and that's been really interesting because that focuses on individuals that are come from non-Muslim group universities yeah. um, are really thinking about how you promote them um, within law firms. Um, and having done a joint event with A&O, it was fantastic to see the reaction of those students Yeah, uh, given that opportunity. And I think it's, you know, it just, it, for me, I think it just made me realise even more that things have to change and yeah. By working with the law firms, this is a great start for us to do that. So, yeah, driven by Sandy, who's amazing mm. in terms of what she does and how she does it. And if you haven't seen any of her stuff, just Google her on, you know, <laughs> on, on YouTube or whatever. She's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, really good. And she's a real promoter of um, yeah. what we're trying to do in this space. 
Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly inspiring. So I saw a post around, uh, I think it was Black History Month, of something that you'd, you'd done at the front of the bank with the images of yeah. um, you know, black, I think it was black women predominantly Correct. in the yeah. bank. I saw a post from someone who'd either literally just joined or someone who was fairly junior. And again, just incredibly empowering yeah. um, just uh, initiatives over there. So yes. great. Yeah. Good stuff. Um, all right. I've got two more questions for you and then I'm going to release you from my hot seat, Sue. <laughs> <laughs> um, last penultimate question. So if you hadn't pursued this career, because um, you've been you've been in financial services all of your career, is that right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. If you if you hadn't if you hadn't pursued this career, what do you think you'd be doing? What was what was going to be Plan B? Uh, a doctor. Oh, interesting. Oh, very different. Yeah. Why? So I've been a doctor. I think. Well, I'm always claiming to be a doctor with my children, so <laughs> I think. Um, but yeah, just naturally inquisitive. I think just trying to find out new things and yeah, so I could possibly see myself as being a doctor. Yeah, Doctor Manic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It does. It sounds great. Um, And my final question, which I always ask all of our guests, and I love asking this uh, question, what advice would you give 25-year-old Sue? I think the advice I would give is, is, you know, put yourself out there. Don't be afraid. Hmm. Don't be afraid of getting a lot back. It's absolutely fine. And, you know, as much as I, I mean, I give this advice to, to my children that, you know, don't be afraid to put yourself forward for things that you might feel a little bit uncomfortable doing and you you might sort of be a little bit wary about doing because you're not entirely 100% sure, you know, in terms of how it will work out. But that's fine, you know, and actually just putting yourself out there and, and you know, being brave around this, I think is really important. Mm. So, yeah, just go for it. I mean, what have you got to lose? Yeah. Absolutely. What have you got to lose? Sue, thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy and a pleasure chatting to you spending time with me today. Um, And I look forward to future conversations. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Cynthia. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me. Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.